I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Welcome to LiveWire, everyone. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. We have a great show in store for you this week. The theme that we picked was icebreakers because, well, one of our guests, Colin O'Brady, set a record by crossing Antarctica unsupported. We're going to talk to him coming up. Also, Danny Shapiro stops by. She's an amazing writer who found out pretty late in life that the guy she thought was her biological father was in fact not her biological father. Plus, Chris Garcia stops by. He's a funny comedian who he knew his biological father and unfortunately lost him at a young age, and that helped spur Chris into the kind of comedy that he does. We're going to experience some of that coming up. Plus, we have got music from Portland's own Casey Neal and the Norway Rats, so make sure you stick around for that. The theme we picked, Icebreakers, was, of course, because of Colin, uh, but it also seemed to apply really to all of our guests. And our announcer, Elena Passarello, has a kind of complicated relationship, it turns out, with the whole idea of icebreakers. Like when you meet someone for the first time, she has had some real success with icebreakers and some real failures, which she was telling me about right as we kicked off the show at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. Here, check it out. Um, my first year teaching uh, at Oregon State University, we were hosting this poet that I thought was just a really, really good poet. I was sort of in awe of this poet. I'll leave their name out of it. Uh, and all I had to do, I was so nervous, but all I had to do was take the poet from the reading to the dinner, which, like a five-minute drive. And I was like, think of topics, think of topics, think of topics, think of topics. So we're walking to the car, and the, the poet says, you know, I've never been to this town before. It's really cute. And the first thing that came You're out of it. You're in Corvallis, Oregon in at this Corvallis, moment? Corvallis, Oregon. Where it's, the sun is shining. There's plenty of wonderful things about Corvallis, Oregon. Sure. But the first thing that came out of my mouth was, yeah, Ted Bundy murdered somebody here. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I don't even, I, that's a terrible thing to say, and I didn't even know. Whether or not that was true, it just came out of my mouth like it was. Wait, wait, wait. Like, had you even heard that as a rumor, or were you inventing that on the spot? 
at the moment, I wasn't sure. And so then I was like, so I, but I'd broken the ice. And so I had to kind of yeah. go. And then hit the body beneath it. Yeah. I, <laughs> I had to go like into the crevasse and go further. Yeah. And then he was like, wow, that, that's an interesting fact. And then, then there was more silence. And I was like, fill the silence, fill the silence. And then I just went, I love murder. year on the job. Are you driving in the car when this is happening? <laughs> no, we hadn't even gotten to the car yet. You're not even at the car yet. No. We're like 50 paces into this terribly awkward conversation. Um, and so then he was so kind. He was like, well, what kind of murder do you like? Oh, my God. <laughs> See, at that point, I feel like this is on him. He should not be encouraging you. No. Well, he's a poet, and they do have a sense for the both the sublime and the macabre. So far, so good. Yeah. Uh, and then... Um, so he asked you, what kind of murder do you like? Yeah, and I was writing my second book, which is all about animals, and I was just like, get back to what you know, Passarello. And so then I just said, animal murder. <laughs> Nobody likes animal murder. No. Like, people who eat meat spend the whole time cognitively <laughs> disassociating from the fact that it's animal murder. Do you have any suggestions from the audience about their go-to icebreakers? We asked the fine folks here at the Alberta Rose Theater, uh, what they like to use to break the ice. You can learn a lot, I, I've learned now, from people based on what their go-to icebreaker is. There are questions that you ask someone, sure. right? Seems very generous, like this one from Janice. What were you doing half your life ago? What a nice way to break the ice. Good job, Janice. Yeah. Right? I do feel like that involves more math than I want to do at a barbecue. <laughs> okay, so that one's done. Um, here's... <laughs> Here's a yes or no question. Okay. So not so open-ended, maybe a little safer. Uh, as from Mary, have you been to Burning Man? <laughs> sort of let you know what you're in for. Maybe. What do you do after the person says yes, because that's the answer in Portland? Right, yeah. 100% <laughs> of the time, yes, I just got back. <laughs> yeah. uh, one more here. Okay, uh, here's one for, from Susan. How's the crab dip? <laughs> That's, I like that one. Yeah. Like, Old, reliable. And I like it because it works if there isn't crab dip, too. Yeah. Because then you have a conversation about, like, who was supposed to bring the crab dip. Right. Or if you're on a plane and you just yeah. turn to someone <laughs> and just say, how's the crab dip? Like, maybe. That's great. That's, that's going to be my new how about that ball team. Uh, we have somebody waiting in the wings who knows all about ice breaking. He is the first person to cross the continent of Antarctica alone without the aid of resupplies or a kite. More on that in a minute. The New York Times called his accomplishment one of the greatest achievements in polar history. Please welcome Portland's own Colin O'Brady to Livewire. So uh, welcome back to the show. Great to be back. The last time we had you on, it was because you had climbed the tallest mountain on every continent, right? That's correct. Okay, and now we have you back because you crossed Antarctica uh, unassisted and without the aid of a kite. That's right. That's Is that right. a thing that so, works? <laughs> um, so the first, the thing I did was the first person in history to cross unsupported, which means no resupply. So I had my, all my food and fuel and everything, 375-pound sled behind me, and then unassisted, which means no use of kites or dogs, and no one ever had done that before in history before me. Okay. <laughs> how do you... How do you... How do you prepare for something like that? Like, what does a training day look like for you 
Uh, are you r- like running up a glacier with a sled behind you? There was I mean- some of that. There was plenty of that. I also crossed Greenland in preparation, so I dragged a sled across Greenland to train. But the most interesting training I did actually was here in Portland at a gym called Evolution Healthcare and Fitness. My coach, yeah, <laughs> uh, the coach is by the guy by the name of Mike McCastle. What Mike had me doing was literally planks and lifting weights, but at the same time, he had me solving Lego problems after handing my, having my hands in ice to simulate cold hands and needing to set up my tent, and then he would throw math equations at me so I could have to use my brain. I mean, it was a whole kind of crazy mind, body, cold, hot, insane sort of preparation. Wow. <laughs> okay, so that sort of covers the physical and I guess the mental, but what about the psychological or like the emotional component of being alone for that whole time? How do you get ready for that? Yeah, so 54 days alone in a completely blank landscape. You know, Antarctica, obviously the sun never sets that time of year, so um, it's a lot of white loneliness. Um, I spent, I started going to Vipassana silent meditation retreats. Anyone ever heard of that, done that here in the audience? Yeah. So 10 days of silence, no reading, no writing, no eye contact, something I've been doing for about a decade, um, but that definitely prepared me to enter into this even deeper level of silence in 54 days that ultimately led to some profound flow states and some very uh, insightful uh, moments out there. Yeah, I want to talk about the flow state. (laughs) We're talking to Colin O'Brady, by the way, who crossed Antarctica unassisted and without a kite in a flow state. Um, (laughs) I want to talk about the end of the journey uh, in a minute because that was kind of incredible. But just as far as like day one goes, you've done all this prep. You've been to this crazy gym where they douse you with ice water and make you play Scrabble or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but now it's like all of that is over. You're just like the, I was it an airplane leaves. Yeah. You're alone standing on the snow. What goes through your mind in a moment like that? Well, you know, after a year of planning and all this dreaming and the guy who tried three years before me, unfortunately died right near the end. I mean, there's the stakes are very high. Um, I get there, I put all my stuff in my sled, I cinch up my sled, and I'm pulling this strap, and ping, strap breaks. (laughs) First thing, I haven't taken one step. So that was a... Is the plane gone? The plane's gone. I'm like, well, this is going to be a long trip. Then uh, I have a video of myself like, it's great, it's a beautiful sunny day, it's going to be awesome. And then the next clip of my GoPro is about two hours later, and I'm sweating profusely, even though it's minus 30 degrees, going, oh my god. I named my project The Impossible first. And I was like, I think I may have named the project the right thing. It <laughs> looks to be impossible. The sled is way too heavy. Really? So yes. it, it like felt heavy to you despite all the training and all the preparation? Yes. 375-pound sled in deep snow, um, being all alone in Antarctica. Just the, just the gravitas of that moment definitely uh, incited a fair amount of doubt. And you're going how many miles if you finish this thing? So it was 930 miles from the Ron Ice Shelf to the Ross Ice Shelf via the South Pole. I, I'm upset if I have to park in the far away Target parking lot. <laughs> like, it ruins my day. It's far. I'm not going to lie. That's far. Wow. Part of this for you, too, was people were following this with great interest on social media and stuff like that because, you, because of the ability to do that now. There must have been so many days where you were just like not feeling like videotaping yourself or uploading things or being like hashtag Colin O'Brady. <laughs> um, that's a fair point. But actually, one of my larger inspirations for doing this is I've started as my you know, professional athlete for about a decade, um, set some other world records. But as I've kind of gone on through my career, I've started to think of myself less as a professional athlete and more as an artist. Insane person? Oh, <laughs> sorry. Um, I thought you were going to say that one. Sort of my canvas happens to be endurance sports, but being able to use storytelling and creative uh, methodologies of sharing the 
story in lots of different ways really is my way of putting you know, a ripple effect of positivity into the world um, to hopefully inspire others that even if they don't want to walk across Antarctica and they have to just walk from the Target parking lot to the front yeah. door. <laughs> I watched some of your videos for inspiration. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It got me there. Yeah. Uh, we got to take a quick break. We have Colin O'Brady here with us. This is Live Wire Radio from PRI. We will be right back. Live Wire is supported in part by Fully. Have you ever noticed how kind of not great you feel after you sit at work all day? Truth of the matter is your chair is probably part of the problem. Most chairs and desks, they restrict movement, which leaves your body kind of achy. Now we'd like to tell you about Fully, designer and collector of standing desks, chairs, and other workspace tools that encourage you to move so you will feel better at the end of your day. Uh, I use a Fully TikTok stool when I am recording these messages, and it has really changed my whole kind of physicality. After a long day, and I know it doesn't sound like a real job, maybe because it isn't, but after a long day of recording things at my home studio, sitting on a TikTok stool, I feel great. I don't feel like I've been ossifying for the last eight hours. I feel like I'm ready to go take on my evening. Uh, so I can't recommend Fully highly enough. Get your body moving in your workspace like I've done. Go to fully.com slash livewire. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash livewire. Fully, desks, chairs, and things to keep you moving. Welcome back to Livewire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarello. We are here at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, and we have Colin O'Brady with us, first person to cross Antarctica unaided. Um, you seem like a kind of like incredibly upbeat, incredibly <laughs> fit, sickeningly attractive, <laughs> perfect person. But did you have, I mean, did you have like legitimately some, any low moments where you actually kind of thought, man, I don't know if I can do this? Um, no, I can't say, why would that have happened out there? Of course. Well, I don't, I mean, because <laughs> yes, honestly, course. Colin, I would assume someone would have it, but you do seem like you were so well prepared. You were so, like, you di you accomplished it with such aplomb. Maybe you didn't no. have any doubt. Maybe there you was, were there, fine. There was incredibly challenging moments. I mean, oftentimes the wind would be minus 60 degrees, the average temp being minus 25. That's about minus 80 degree wind chill. I didn't take a single day off having to set my tent up in that. To me, it's like being alone that long. I describe it as sort of having a party and alone in your head but all the angels and the demons are both invited yeah are you Just, listening to music pretty much no music uh, i spent about 80 or 90 percent of my time in silence but i did uh channel one of my favorite albums i brought down there with me was uh, paul simon's graceland from my childhood wow. so i uh i played that on repeat quite a lot yeah um the diamonds on the soles of your <laughs> shoes were ice <laughs> the, cr the crazy thing that happened was that um uh jenna my wife who's also my expedition planner co-creator the visionary behind everything she's extraordinary Extraordinary. Um, and she told me at the end of one night, she said, you know, you got to call this phone number. And the New York Times had been following along and a few other news outlets. And so I was like, oh, another interview. I'm so tired. Do I really have to do it? She's like, trust me, call this number. Sure enough, I called the number. And it's like, hello, this is Paul. And I was like, <gasps> Paul? Simon? <laughs> so I'm in the middle of nowhere. Haven't spoken to anybody in 37 days at this point. Wait, now the I'm first Paul. person you talked to was Paul Simon? <laughs> Other than my wife, yes. Um, <laughs> what if it would have been Garfunkel? Yeah, right? <laughs> that would have been the sickest burn. A lot better harmony. If she would have been like, I got our Garfunkels. No, I couldn't get Paul Simon. Um, Okay, let's let's talk about the end of, of, of the race. You you went into what you described to the New York Times as a flow state, 
where it was the, like the last how many hours? It was like about 77 or so miles, right? Yeah, so my furthest day at that point had been about 33 miles, and I was averaging somewhere between 15 to 16 on most days. That's pulling my sled or 12 or 13 hours. But I woke up on Christmas morning, and I was 77 miles away from the finish line. I thought that would take me about three or so days. But because of sort of this deep flow state that I describe or mindset that I've caught into is sort of this peaceful moment in my mind, despite all the storming surrounds, um, I managed to go 77 miles and 32 hours straight, no music, nothing, but just this deep focus state between day 53 and finished on the morning of the 54th wow. day. I've been there. I've been like, I'm only doing the darks, and then I just get crazy, and all the laundry's done, like, four hours later. Uh, exactly. So I think, we can, I think can we can all kind of relate, yeah. Colin. Um, What do you, I mean, you've talked about this flow state. I mean, what do you attribute this to? How did you find that within yourself to do the last 77 miles that way? You know, in a lot of ways, it's to me, it was a reflection of sort of my entire life. I was severely burned in a fire 10 years ago. I was told I never would walk again. Recovering from that, my meditation practice, the swim laps I did as a kid, sort of all of the different experiences of my life, both emotional as well as physical, kind of all stacked on top of each other into this one moment of sort of deep, profound, like I said, calm. There was this ground blizzard swirling around me, actually one of the worst um, storms of the entire time, but in my mind, I was completely at peace and confident in my ability to keep going on and make it all the way to the end. At any point, did you think you were hallucinating? <laughs> um, like, did you have moments of kind of your mental... Uh, awareness, I guess you could say, becoming somewhat tenuous? Yeah, there were, there were definitely times, being alone for that long, one of the interesting things is that there was actually another guy out there at the same time attempting this project. Yeah, right, that you were, in, in a sense, sort of racing someone. Yeah, so people have tried this over you know, the course of history. As I mentioned, unfortunately, someone died. Another guy had ran out of food, had to be re rescued. And me and another guy, uh, sort of British military guy, decided to try this at the exact same time, unbeknownst to each other, but we got dropped off at the same time attempting this. Wait. And, Wait a sec. Did you find out when you were in Antarctica? About five days before, I was. I told him about my project, and we know him. But there's no only one, way. There's only one plane and one day, really, that you could set this up. So, sure enough, we were dropped off at the same time. So, anyways, you asked about hallucination, yeah. which is he went ahead of me. You know, he got up a stronger start than me. He was actually the most experienced um, polar expeditioner in the world at this point. Has done more miles dragging a sled than anyone. Um, so he takes off, and then on day six, I overtake him, and I was ahead of him the rest of the What's time. What's that to, conversation to like? <laughs> <laughs> um, Do you say anything to each other? It was kind of a, a very quiet and bashful sort of wave and a wishing. I said, you know, you know, I hope to see you at the end safe and sound. I didn't know if we were going to go back and forth, but I ended up staying in front the entire time. But about 25 days into this, and of course, I was moving quickly knowing someone was behind me because he was trying to be the first in the world to do this, and so was I. And I actually thought to myself... Did I make, is there actually another guy out here? Or did I make that up? Is that something I created in my mind to just motivate me? Like, I'm looking around, like, I don't see anyone, but I'm pretty sure there's another guy. Why like, is Paul Simon thing? here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the mind does a crazy thing in that blank space, that's for sure. Colin O'Brady, everybody, right here on Livewire. All right, Colin, you've made it very clear you are a physical marvel. You can do amazing things the rest of us cannot. But we're wondering how tough your mental game is to test that. We have a little segment that we call Let's Get Quizzical. Let's get quizzical. Quizzical. I want to get quizzical. Let's see if 
Uh, you call your project uh, impossible first. Uh, you've done a lot of things that are seemingly impossible, which really had us feeling kind of bummed out, because that's <laughs> not really our speed here at Livewire. We are more into world records that seem like they're very doable. Okay, yeah. So we have put together a little quiz here that we're calling To Dream the Possible Dream. Love it. So I'm going to read you some records. Some of these are real records that were actually set, and some of them are ones that we made up, and you have to pick which is which, okay? If you uh, get it right, you're going to hear this, and if you get it wrong, you're going to hear this. I feel like we're going to hear more of the second one. Well, we'll see here. <laughs> the world record for most sticky notes stuck to the face in 30 seconds currently stands at 38. Is that a real achievable goal? Seems like you could do more. Or something that we made up? I'm going to go with false. You are 100% wrong. <laughs> it is a real record. Silvio like Saba from Italy set this record on <laughs> April 18th, 2018. Oh, that's recent. I'm coming for you, Sylvia. Yeah. <laughs> that would be the most uncool thing if you started just dominating very doable records that like normal people like us are excited about. And you go like into a post-it note flow state. Yeah. Right? <laughs> exactly. How about this one? The world record time in assembling an IKEA Stuva loft bed combo. <laughs> Seven minutes and 22 seconds. Is had, this they, a, had they pre-done it before, or had they first time they're seeing it? You know what I'm saying? That would be the equivalent of me giving you a kite to help yourself <laughs> through this. Assisted. Assisted. No assistance here. Um, I'm going to go with false. You are absolutely right. Yes. This is false. We made this <laughs> up. I've done it faster. No, it's, it is not apparently a real record. Um, I have so a that would be a world first. Yes. So, I mean, if you're looking for your next project... IKEA Furniture Assembly is still out there. How about this? World record for people in the same room simultaneously applying face masks, 1,213. Is this a thing that happened, or is it still out there for you, Colin O'Brady, and 1,212 of your best friends possibly to accomplish? I'm going to go with that's a true one. You're absolutely right. That is a real thing that happened in Taipei. The face masks were applied for 10 minutes. Um, 1,213 people in Taipei put on face masks at wow. the same time. How about this? Do you think there is currently an individual in the world who holds the world record for eating frozen pizzas while unicycling? Like, while they're still frozen? <laughs> you have to take everything to a very cold place. Colin, is that your thing? I would go with, yes, that's a real thing. That is not a real thing, uh, I'm sorry. But there's a lot of pizza-related stuff out there. Most pizzas eaten in 10 minutes, 45 slices... Ooh. That's brutal. Most pizza boxes held one-handed at once? Like 27. 80. 80! That, that was by somebody named Colin Shayer at Mr. Jim's Pizza in Texas. I feel like Colin just had a very boring afternoon shift. <laughs> yeah, no one, was in the, no one was in the show. Were you into the Guinness Book of World Records when you were a kid at I all? I was a huge fan of the Guinness Book of World Records when I was a kid. I used to spin through it. So when I saw my name in there a couple years ago, it was like the greatest moment of my life. <laughs> Colin O'Brady, everybody. Hey, it's Luke. Uh, do not go anywhere because coming up we have hilarious comedian Chris Garcia. Now, Chris's dad was originally from Cuba, 
And Chris is not exactly sure how to feel about how in style visiting Cuba is now with a certain kind of person. You have to go before it changes. Just picture it, drive around in old cars, smoke a cigar. It's a perfect level of poverty for Instagram right now. Stick around. That is coming up in a moment right here on Livewire from PRI. Sweater season is here, but before it's time to unpack the knitwear, Alaska Airlines suggests one more taste of summer. Alaska Airlines now offers low fares on nonstops from Portland to Maui, Hawaii Island, Kauai, and Oahu. Plus, included in that low fare is assigned seating, over 400 free movies and TV shows, and power outlets at your seat in case your battery is low and the movie isn't over. Aloha, Alaska Airlines. This is Livewire Radio from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarello. Uh, our next guest had to figure out how to break the ice with a biological father that she had no idea existed. Danny Shapiro casually took one of those mail-in DNA tests and ended up finding out truths about her family tree that she could have never imagined. Her memoir about the experience is Inheritance. Please welcome Danny Shapiro to Livewire. Danny, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's start uh, kind of at the beginning. Like, where did you grow up and what was your family structure like, at least as far as you knew at that point? So I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish family in Hillside, New Jersey, in the shadow of Newark Airport. I was an only child. My parents were older. I was told, you don't look Jewish, you can't possibly be Jewish. And it was said to me every day of my life. I mean, I, I, when you're a kid, you just are who you think you are, right? Like you, the stories that we tell ourselves. And in one particular moment, um, I was maybe four years old, and friends of my parents, Holocaust survivors who were having Sabbath lunch at our house, in fact, uh, a lady named Mrs. Kushner, who later became the a grandmother of Jared Kushner. Um, she patted me on the head, and I was very blonde, and she said, uh, we could have used you in the ghetto, little blondie. You could have gotten us bread from the Nazis. What was your response, if you can remember? At four. Um, I think I internalized it, and I just felt like, wow, I wish I had been alive so that I could have helped. If I had been there, I could have. It was such an incredible thing to say to a child. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you write in the book about how you, you didn't feel particularly close to your mother. What was your relationship with your father like? It was very close and loving. He was a really warm dad. He was the better parent. Sorry, Mom, she's gone. I mean, maybe she can hear this, but... Um, We're, this show is huge in heaven. <laughs> it's literally our main demo. We would like some ratings on Earth if we could get those. <laughs> Um, you took a mail-in DNA test, just one of those things that we've all probably seen ads for on TV. Why did you take that test in the first place? My husband was doing it himself for 
just sort of recreational reasons, thought he might find some third or fourth cousins, the reasons why most people do them. Kind so, of curiosity, but not a thought about like major family secrets no. being uncovered. No, I think most people when they take those tests, I mean 12 million people took those tests last year, and 2% discover that they have a parent that they didn't know about. But the information that first came back just showed me as being half Jewish, which made no sense. Or maybe Ancestry.com just made a big fat mistake. Huh. <laughs> but that wasn't the case. You write that there was a weird conversation you had with your mother at one point about you being conceived in Philadelphia. This was news to you as, I think, an adult, right? What happened that time? I was 25 years old. Um, my father had died two years earlier. It was actually the anniversary of his death, and I remember that because I did not want my mom to spend the night alone. So I invited her to a reading of graduate students. And at that reading, I introduced her to a friend of mine. And my mother said, oh, Rachel, nice to meet you. Where are you from? And Rachel said, Philadelphia. And my mother said, oh, my daughter was conceived in Philadelphia. Classic icebreaker. <laughs> what did you say to your mother after that? I said, what do you mean I was conceived in Philadelphia? <laughs> <laughs> to which my mother replied, oh, you don't want to know. It's not a pretty story. So after the evening when I was driving her back to New York, I, I pushed her to explain what she meant by not a pretty story. And she uh, said a few things. She said, your father had slow sperm. There was an institute in Philadelphia. That was the word she used, which ended up being a huge clue. She didn't say clinic. She didn't say hospital. Institute. And she said artificial insemination. But she made it very clear that it was my father and she that were doing this together. And that must have made sense to you because you then went through uh, the rest of your adult life up until the DNA test, assuming that was the, actually what had happened, right? Yeah, I totally accepted it. And, and uh, you know, my, my father was gone. I had adored him. He was my dad. And despite the fact that I had always been told, you don't look Jewish and all that kind of stuff, I just closed the door until a couple of years ago when there were the results. And so just using nothing more than Facebook and Google, um, at, we were able to, my husband and I were able to discover my biological father. And when I saw him, it was on a YouTube video. He was in Oregon. He's a retired physician and medical ethicist. <laughs> and how had he become your biological father? What was the story behind it? So, the institute that my parents went to in Philadelphia was on the campus of the University of Pennsylvania, and they used medical students' uh, donated sperm. Uh, this is Livewire Radio. We're talking to Danny Shapiro. She wrote a book, Inheritance, about finding out that her biological father was not the person that she thought was her father. Um, you reached out to the person who turned out to be your biological father. Did you struggle over the decision of whether or not to reach out, or was it just immediate? It was immediate. I mean, I had just found out that the man I thought was my biological father all my life hadn't been, and so I was just trying to like put myself back together again to start with. But also, a, a journalist who was part of this process of helping us find him said to me, there are templates. 
you really ought to kind of, there are templates for how to reach out to your biological father at the age oh. of 54 when you find out that you weren't the, and I just thought, you know, I think I've left the world of templates, right? Like just <laughs> yeah. at this very moment, I am not in the world of templates. And also I'm a writer and I can write an email um, that is effective. And I was very careful. I just like waited, this, this may come as a shock. It will certainly feel like it's, you know, falling out of the clear blue sky. My name is Danny Shapiro, I'm a writer, I'm a mother, I'm a wife, I'm, I live in Connecticut. I have reason to believe that you may be my biological father. Um, I don't, we won't give away the part of the book about what happens with the communication with, with your biological father, but I'll just say I read this book with great interest because I never really met my biological father. I mean, I was, a, I was in utero when my mom and him separated. And then I was, I don't know, maybe one or two, she took me to have him sign some paperwork, like releasing liability on me or whatever. And it has not been something that I've thought about a huge amount or that if he had passed away, I guess, but had he been alive, I would, I would not have personally had some huge desire to meet him and piece together that part of my life. I don't know if that's just my personality type. You were clearly rocked by this news. I mean, brought to your absolute knees over this. Is that because of the age you were when you found out the information, or is that just different personality types respond to this kind of stuff differently? I think it's because I knew, I, I had certainty about who my dad was. And it had been a secret that had been kept from me that he wasn't. And so that secret permeated my life and became part of my identity. I gave incorrect medical history for my entire life. Like if you had gone to a doctor when you were, I don't know, 25 years old and they said paternal medical history, you would have been like, I maybe, I don't know. Yeah. Or, my you, mom, my birth certificate, they have, you have to write the job of the father. My mom wrote longshoreman question mark. And that was always part of your identity. Right. Long term and question mark. Yeah. But but that was part of it, right? Yeah. As opposed to finding out like, oh, totally wrong. You know, Orthodox Jewish Paul Shapiro, my dad. Um, and then suddenly, actually, no, not at all. Swedish, French, Irish, English, anonymous sperm donor, University of Pennsylvania medical student, dad, not dad, but you know, biological father. It's the secrecy that's the issue. It's not the biology. Yeah, because I tend to be of the opinion that other than, you know, medical stuff and physiological things, like so much of, of who we are is the people who raised us, the people we were around, the nurturing. We had the nurturing that you had from Paul Shapiro, from his parents and people. I mean, that's really who we are, right? Oh, without a question. I do end up meeting my biological father, and he did not feel like my father to me. He felt like the country that I was from or the cloth that I was cut from. He was very familiar. I look like him. I gesture like him. They're traits that we share, but he didn't feel like my father because he didn't raise me. He didn't love me into being, and it actually brought me all the way to a place of absolutely feeling like the man who raised me is my, is my dad. And my, you know, that's, I honor that, and I honor his, um, his bravery, really, and heroism in going down that road at a time when that was not an easy thing to do. If you could snap your fingers and just have not ever taken that test, would you, would you do it? I'm so glad I know. 
because it explains so much. It was like I was wearing the wrong prescription and suddenly huh. I saw, I, it, it just, everything snapped into place. I'm glad I know. It was really hard, but it's ultimately incredibly liberating. Wow. Danny Shapiro, everyone. The book is Inheritance. Check it out. This is Livewire Radio, coming to you from Portland, Oregon. We're at the Alberta Rose Theater. I'm Luke Burbank. That is Elena Passarello. Our theme this week is icebreakers, and we asked the crowd here uh, what their go-to icebreaker is. And Elena, you've been collecting up some of the more notable answers. What do you got? Mm -hmm. Here's one from Aaron. What would your theme song be? My theme song? Mm -hmm. um, here come the judge. I just went with the first thing that came into my mind. That's great. What else? Here's an incredibly prescient one from Brian. Do you know who your parents are? Are you sure? <laughs> I think we're all wondering that now. Would you want to know if, if your parents were not your parents? Uh, no. Uh, I, uh, I have a similar situation to you where my parents were not together for very long, but... Um, I look so unmistakably like both of them. Sometimes I walk past my, in a mirror and I'm just like, ah! you know, because they're, they're there with me. Uh, so I don't, I, I guess I'm not from the world's greatest position because I'm, I would, I'm, I'm definitely sure. Yeah. Uh, do you got another one there? Uh, here's one from Pamela. Uh, this is a good one. What's the best tattoo that you have that I cannot see? And yours, you have a good one for I that, have, right? Oh, man. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> I have a lot of tattoos. I have... Uh, a, a tattoo that currently says my daughter's name, her first name and her middle name. It used to say my daughter's first name and my ex-wife's name. Had that l the ex-wife part laser burned off, which is not as painful as you would think. Hmm. If anybody's thinking about getting a tattoo, I would say yes, do it. I have no tattoos. Zero. So Pamela's question, I'd have to make something up. Like I have an insane clown posse tattoo <laughs> all the way. Like. Sure. <laughs> I always figured you for a juggalette. I am. I am. This is Live Wire from PRI. Our comedian this hour has appeared on Comedy Central, has a new podcast with WNYC that talks about comedy and death and family. And if all that's not enough, he's also developing a pilot based on his life over at Fox Television. Please welcome the very funny Chris Garcia to Live Wire. <laughs> How's it going? I love this city. This city's so fun. But I am freezing. I do not know how to dress for this weather. I look like Cheech and Chong works at Urban Outfitters right now. I am not prepared for the Pacific Northwest. Uh, for those of you listening at home, just imagine I'm kind of dressed like one of the guys breaking into Macaulay Culkin's house in Home Alone. <laughs> I look like a wet bandit right now. A little bit about me. Uh, my family's from Cuba. I'm bringing a little diversity to the show, I guess. I think Portland's uh, idea of diversity is white guys that have climbed different mountains. <laughs> white guys are great. They make up their own struggle. <laughs> <laughs> Ha, 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 ha. 
They didn't have to do it, but they did, because they could. Man, that's cool. <laughs> My family put a lot of pressure on me as a kid. My father wanted me to be an astronaut. I was born a year after my parents got to the United States, and my dad wanted me to be an astronaut. That's how ambitious my dad was. He just got to America, and he wanted me to already go to space. I think he forgot that he's a hardworking immigrant. I'm an American. My dream is to get hit by a Walmart truck and get paid for the rest of my life. Not trying to do space math over here. I love my parents a lot. I, uh, I try uh, to speak about my family in a dignified manner because I think you've seen a lot of comedians maybe speak lowly of their immigrant parents or they make fun of them in a way and I don't think we should do that anymore. And I think for a, a lot of reasons, uh, it's rude. Uh, it's also very unfair, you know? My dad never got on stage and made fun of me. My dad never came here and made fun of me. Never once did he get on stage. And he wasn't like, uh, hey, you guys, anybody have an American-born kid? <laughs> no, but okay, I'm going to talk about it. Oh, oh, man. My son, Christian, he goes by Chris. <laughs> Getting on stage, oh, I'm Cuban. Whoa, wow. He doesn't look Cuban. He looks like he works at Trader Joe's or something. You believe this guy, man? I tell you what, me and his mom, her name is Martica, were refugees from Cuba. In our 30s, we came to the United States. A year later, boom, Christian. Chris. <laughs> wow, okay, Chris pops out. I'm so excited. He's my only son, my only American-born kid. He's my second chance. I do everything for this boy. I work blue-collar jobs. Graveyard shift. I put him in a escuela privada, a private school. We got him tutors because he's stupid. <laughs> he came out undercooked. I don't know what happened. Mom forgot to preheat the oven, but he came out a little soft, but I don't care. I say, Christian, this is America, the land of opportunity. You can do forever you want. Forever you want. <laughs> You're a good person. You don't fool around. You work hard. You pay your taxes. You can do it. You can do it, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. <laughs> Christian goes to UC Berkeley for college. One of the best public universities in the United States. <laughs> and you want to know what he studied? Any, uh, anybody want to take a gander? <laughs> and what, he studied poetry. Poetry, are you telling me I floated through shark-infested waters on a hubcap so this can read haikus. <laughs> this kid got so smart he became stupid again, man. <laughs> My dad never did that. <laughs> Great guy. <laughs> you know, I did this show recently at a comedy festival, and this other comedian afterwards stopped me. And he said it was cheap that I was talking in my dad's voice and that I had, it was cheap and unfair that I was talking about my heritage and that it gave me an unfair advantage. 
But I thought about it. I think the guy's right. Like, I remember when my dad sat me down, and I was a little boy, and he said, Chris, as a firstborn son of refugees, your life is going to be harder in every way. You grew up poor. You're not going to have as many opportunities out the gate. Um, kids might make fun of your lunch at school. You're going to have the first mustache in third grade. <laughs> but there's going to come a time when you need to make a room full of strangers laugh, and then you can rely on my crazy Cuban accent. <laughs> I have every right to create art based on the circumstances of my life. I am very proud to be in Cuban, though. I do, I do get annoyed how people have exoticized it a little bit. You know what I mean? Have you been? Oh my god, you have to go. You have to go before it changes. Just picture it, drive around in an old cars, smoke a cigar. It's a perfect level of poverty for Instagram right now. <laughs> the people, they're so poor, but they're so happy. Have you heard people talk like this? Oh my gosh, it makes me so sick. You know who never vacations in Cuba? Cubans that left Cuba. My parents left 40 years ago, they've never gone back. When I lived in San Francisco, my dad wouldn't even visit Alcatraz. He was like, you want me to go to a prison island surrounded by sharks? <laughs> fool me once, shame on you. Fool me, can't fool me again. <laughs> you guys have been great. Thank you so much. Good night. That's Chris Garcia. This is Livewire from PRI. We've got to take a quick break. We will be right back. Special thanks this week to Lisa Steindorf of Portland, Oregon, and Ian Paha and Carly Ruffalo of Portland, Oregon as well. Lisa, Ian, and Carly are part of the Livewire member community. And maybe even more importantly, they are part of the community that supports us with a donation each month. And we are so thankful for their support. We could not do this show, Livewire, without generous donations from people like Lisa, Ian, and Carly. So thank you so much for helping make Livewire possible. Welcome back to Livewire. We're at the Alberta Rose Theater here in Portland this week. I'm Luke Burbank. That is Elena Passarello. All right, our musical guest this hour is, you might say, almost strangely hopeful about the future, which is really a nice change of pace for a lot of us. That vibe definitely comes through in his new album, Subterrene, which is out now. Please welcome Casey Neal and the Norway Rats to Livewire. Casey, welcome to Livewire. Hey, hey. I should say welcome back to Livewire. You've been on the show before in, in with various uh, formations of different bands, right? Yes, in various other groups, but never with uh, never playing my own music. So it's really good to be here to do that. Um, the Norway Rats are themselves a, a very decorated and beloved group of musicians, from many of them from right here in Portland, Oregon. How mm -hmm. did they get named the Norway Rats? Uh, it was because of a book uh, by the author Robert Sullivan, uh, who had written a book called Rats, and there was a story in there 
about is about the Nor Norway rats are the the giant rats in New York City, the the breed, and the Norwegians just got blamed. They came over on ships at the time when ships were coming over from everywhere, uh, but yeah, somehow the Norwegians got blamed for this. And you um, saw that, and you thought, let's let's name the band after that. Yep. <laughs> What song are we going to hear, Casey? Uh, we're going to play a song called Savages. Okay. Yeah. And this is off Subterrane? It's off Subterrane. All right. Yeah. This is Casey Neal and the Norway Rats, everybody.
That is Casey Neal and the Norway Rats right here on Livewire. Their album, Subterrene, is available now. All right, that is going to do it for our show this week. Thank you so much to our guests, Colin O'Brady, Danny Shapiro, Chris Garcia, and Casey Neal and the Norway Rats. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Fully, and the Jupiter Hotel. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Lauren Masterson is our development and marketing director. Tim Harkins is our production director. And our marketing associate is Christian Seger. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is A. Walker Spring, Ethan Fox Tucker, and Ezra Rose. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake, and our on-air mix is by Corey Schreppel. Thank you so much, as always, to Carlson Audio. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we got to thank members John Lowry and Ann Wendlin of Vancouver, Washington, for their support. For more information about our show or how to get our podcast or newsletter, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. For Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew, thank you so much for listening. And we will see you next week. PRI Public Radio International. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait. Actually, no. Sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show, so you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time, because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review. And if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.